On this Discover the Word podcast, Bible geography expert Dr. Jack Beck is back with us to show us how paying attention to place, to the references to geography, really can help us understand the Bible better. And geography helps us understand who Jesus is, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then Jesus helps us understand who our Heavenly Father mm-hmm. is. Yeah. And uh, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're going to be surprised and fascinated by our conversations. And so I hope you'll join the Discover the Word group and our friend Dr. Jack Beck for Amazing Insights Geography ads to our studies of the scriptures. It makes me go back and say, well, what am I missing? What happened? Mm. And of course, the answer is geographical. Hmm. <laughs> of course. Of course. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> that was my first thought as well, Jack. I can't help but think in geographic terms. That's just, you know, who I am. It's baked into the cake. Yeah, Dr. Jack Beck exploring with Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day, The Impact of Place, Part 2, on this Discover the Word podcast. And we are all pretty excited to have our resident Bible geography expert here at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries, Dr. Jack Beck, with us to explore the importance of where, the impact of place. Jack is convinced that location almost always shapes our understanding of an event. And so for that reason, when God speaks, well, geography is a factor that we need to consider. And the Bible has geography on virtually every page. So in this podcast, we'll talk about hunting for some property, about roundabouts and intersections, and about the most mentioned place in the Bible. We're looking forward to having our friend, Dr. Jack Beck, as part of the Discover the Word group, because a while ago, Jack spent a couple of weeks with us talking about this, and uh, we enjoyed it so much that we wanted him to do a sequel. And so that's why this is The Impact of Place, Part Two. Hey, Jack, so good to have you back. We're excited. It is absolutely my privilege to join you at the table today. I wanted to tell you, Jack, I mean, I really enjoyed having you last time. And uh, for me, it brought back a lot of memories because I've had the privilege of traveling to the Bible lands. But for my brother, uh, I wanted you to, to know that he and his wife came upon your geography videos on our Our Daily Bread Ministries website, and they watched them until they were all done and just loved every minute of it. So thank you for what you did there and what you did with us last time and what we're going to get to do this time. Yeah, I love the encouragement. Uh, I, I absolutely love the outdoors, and I love the way the outdoors connects to our Bible reading. So it's uh, it, it's so much fun to share in all the different ways I get to share my uh, Bible insights through the geography. Yeah, we've actually watched quite a few of your videos as a family, and my kids think of you as Indiana Jones. Uh, so congratulations on that. I will not um, try to disabuse them of that, so appreciate that. I tell you, Daniel, I had a, uh, a fourth grade teacher contact me uh, the other day, and she said, that her students beg every day to watch the Jack Beck videos that she's been showing. Oh. So what I hear in that is there's another generation of Bible geographers on the way. It's awesome. It's such a surprising topic because, you know, until you shared with us on our last, well, actually part one of this series, The Impact of place, you know, really, until we did that together, I would read scripture and just kind of scoot over all the quote mm-hmm. hard to pronounce words. I'm completely geographically impaired. I'll just confess that I never know where I am. So I kind of scoot by those things. But you've made me pause and go, yeah. now, where is that? Why does that matter? And it truly does. You've kind of shifted my whole understanding of place matters. Yeah. Yeah. Some of what God has had to say to us. He's chosen to say with geography, it's there. And uh, whether or not we engage it, uh, that makes a huge difference sometimes in the stories that we read. And I hope Mm -hmm. uh, the stories that we look at in this particular program series will do that same thing, just shine a new spotlight on the way God uses place to speak to us. Mm. Well, I'm excited. So where are we going today? Today we're off to Hebron, not terribly far from Jerusalem, just uh, down the the ridge about 18 miles to the south of uh, Jerusalem. But we're going there to talk about, I think, one of the saddest and darkest days in Abraham's life. It's the day that he lost his wife, Sarah. 
And they'd been married not a tiny amount of time, right? Well, we've got a few time markers, right? We know that (laughs) God came and spoke with Abram at age 75 and said, come on, you're going uh, in the direction of Canaan. And then we read about Sarah's death. Sarah is uh, 127. So, wow, you start doing that math. That's a long time to be married. And Jack, just a quick question. Is that kind of how we're supposed to read some of those numbers? I know my generation struggles sometimes when we read some of these like really big ages in the Bible. Is the point the exact number or is the point she was really old? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we do use numbers sometimes in that hyperbolic way, right? I have a million things to do. Uh, And I really don't have a list of a million things to do, but I have a lot to do. In the case of Sarah and Abraham, I think what the author of Genesis is doing is giving us these time markers that help us to understand these spaces Mm -hmm. that uh, sometimes occur between the last time we were with them and when we rejoined them. So Mm -hmm. I tend to read these numbers in a much more literal way than in a metaphoric way. Got it. And so we are off to Hebron. And uh, I think the focus of Genesis 23, the verse that kind of will bring us in is 23 verse 4. Daniel, would you be so kind as to put that verse out in front of us. Sure. So this is Genesis 23, verse 4. Abraham is speaking to the Hittites, uh, and he says, I am a stranger and an alien residing among you. Give me property among you for a burying place so that I may bury my dead out of my sight. It's striking to me that one of the first things we read after the author of Genesis tells us that Abraham is really struggling and in deep grief is he goes looking for property. Mm. What do you mean by that, Jack? Why is that? Well, we've been feeling a tension in this story ever since Genesis 12, right? We're at 23. So 10 chapters ago, we were already feeling this tension. God had come to Abram and Sarah and said, you're the family through which I'm going to bring salvation to the world. I am going to turn your family into a great nation. I'm going to give that family a land on which to live, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And then from your family on that land, I'm going to restore the blessing that was lost in Eden. Redemption is coming back to the world. Hmm. Uh, The challenge that I have in reading the chapters that follow is that Abram and Sarah don't own any property. Mm, yeah. They are moving their livestock and their temporary home, their tents. They're moving those through public landscapes uh, without deeded property. And it all sort of comes to crisis in this chapter when you've got to have land that you own for a cemetery site, for a tomb. You can't just put that on public ground because you don't control mm. what happens then, right, to that space. Now, in our day, I remember when my dad died, Mm. he had known for a couple of years that his time was short because of his health problems. So he had already picked out a funeral plot with my mom, Mm. but there were still a lot of decisions that my mom had to make. So this is kind of that post-death grief business that's really hard because it's the last thing you want to do, be making those kind of decisions. And yet it is the first thing that you have to do. And there's signals in the text he's really hurting. Do you see them? Yeah, you know, I was just reading up as we were looking at this passage, and in in verse 2, this is Genesis 23, it talked about Sarah died in Hebron in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. And there's such intentionality. It's like, this is something I need to do, and I can only Mm. do it in this place. Mm -hmm. And there's another element in this story that I don't think people often see. And that is when Abram sets about the enterprise of acquiring this piece of land, we expect him to bargain. Ephraim the Hittite sets a price. And the next thing we read is Abram goes, okay. Now, any of us who have spent time in the Middle East know that all transactions are bartered. And haggled. (laughs) Absolutely. And Abram knows how to do it, right? Genesis 18, we saw him haggling with the Lord over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, if there's 50 righteousness, if 40 is right, he knew how to do this. Mm -hmm. And here, Mm -hmm. the grief, I think, is just so heavily laden that he simply says, okay, I'll take it. I think also we see, as Daniel was reading the verse, I was struck by how disconnected Abraham feels. I mean, he refers to himself. Mm -hmm. I think, Daniel, the words you read were as a stranger and an alien. Yeah. That uh, he's been wandering around in this place for a lot of years, but he doesn't feel like it's home. 
And so this is the first time that we as readers come alongside Abraham and say, we got to solve this problem. We're feeling the tension of that. And we see the solution going to ground. We see God actually delivering a piece of real estate into the hands of Abraham. And I think that's, that's the importance of this tomb. And what's so striking to me is how imbued with hopefulness it is. Hmm. I don't think of a property purchase in my mind's eye as really much of an aid in terms of Hmm. dealing with my grief. I turn to a cross and an empty tomb. But people who were living in the age of Abraham did not have the cross and empty tomb as that source of hope. What they had was family and land. You know, Jack, you mentioned that this was one of the ways that God provided for Abram. But I'm struck by the fact that it almost feels like a miraculous provision because this guy, Ephron, wants to give Abraham the land, but Abraham doesn't receive that gift. He says, no, I need to buy it. Why did Abraham feel like he needed to purchase it if this could have just been God's provision? Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of those moments, Daniel, where our Western reading may conflict with an Eastern reality. And uh, I can only compare this to walking the old city in Jerusalem, where someone will say to me, here, friend, I'd love you to have this. And that's simply the first step in the bargaining that will determine whether or not I purchase that. I think it, it is simply setting the table for the dialogue about the price. Oh, okay. uh, so I don't know that he's actually honestly going to offer that for free. That's my Western thinking. If I hear it as a Middle Easterner, I don't hear that. And as a Westerner, does it also affect the fact that um, he needs to purchase this so that it is his possession because this becomes kind of the beachhead toward that promised land that God had spoken to him about in Genesis 12? Yeah, absolutely. And what I'm so struck by, and I think, Elisa, you may have noted this before briefly in your comment, Hebron is not just any place. Mm-hmm. It is an important internal crossroads within the country. And so it's going to be a place that Abram's family visits regularly. Uh, we see that not only Abram and Sarah are going to be buried here, but other family members as well. And the extended family of Abraham and all of the generations to come they're going to be going right by this place. Mm -hmm. And I think it's then not only a place that serves as a family tomb, but it's a place that anchors the promise of salvation in the land and in their lives. Mm. And that makes a big difference. It makes a huge difference because every time they visit, they're reminded of their special role that God has given them and the hope that they have that exceeds death. Generation to generation and beyond to today, right? It gives them a place where they can look back to the promise and look forward to the fulfillment of it. Yeah, and we have places like that that are absolutely necessary for us to make this time meaningful and survivable in life, right? And we look back on memories we have of someone who has passed away, and then we look forward through the cross and the empty tomb. We look forward through those to the eternity we'll share with them and our reunion I submit to you that's exactly the role that Hebron is playing here. Yeah, this is a passage that really comes to life when you understand the significance of where it takes place, the impact of place, in this case, Hebron. And we're going to see this kind of thing over and over as we go through this series. Dr. Jack Beck, our guest here on the Discover the Word podcast. All right, so intersections. They're places where things usually come together, right? And Jack says that geographically, often significant things happen in those intersection spaces. And so that's where we go next in our conversations about the impact of place. I'm wondering if uh, any of you have the same problem I do when I drive dealing with roundabouts. What problem do you have, Jack? Well, (laughs) my wife would say that I drive them competitively. It's like a race to see who gets in and who, you know. But I also find them to be somewhat comically challenging when I try to figure out where to get off. Yeah, yeah. And your GPS says, enter the roundabout and take the third exit. And you're saying, wait a minute. (laughs) Exactly. 
See, I don't struggle knowing where to get off. I just like to make my wife roll her eyes by just driving around the circle a couple times. <laughs> Why? You're torturous. It's just a little fun. Well, and it is a little hard to know when to get in because you can't tell if the person from your left is going to take the exit that you're coming from or is going to continue. That's the hardest part. And so you're supposed to, everybody's supposed to just keep going. That's the idea. So nobody ever stops and traffic keeps flowing. But it's like getting on the freeway. You tend to slow down and brake because you don't want to run into anybody. And yet you're supposed to keep going. Well, I'm really glad to hear that I am not the only one who struggles a bit in trying to navigate these uh, sort of intersections. Uh, In driving, I guess, and in real life too. What I'm struck by is as you move about in the land of the Bible and you look at different regions, each of them has a unique and different character. And the place that we're going to go today, which is the, the place for Joshua chapter 10, is called the Benjamin Plateau. And I like to refer to it as a geographic intersection. Hmm. Uh, It is a place where people come and move through, uh, and the stories that we read that occur in that place don't stop there. They're on their way to somewhere else. But it's at those moments of uncertainty in the intersection that the question is asked, you know, where's God in all of this? Mm -hmm. And where am I supposed to get off? And where am I supposed to get on (laughs) with God? Now, Jack, Geography was not my strength. I knew what a mountain was. Remind me what a plateau is. Yeah, so what we've got here, Daniel, Israel has a mountainous core that runs north and south through the middle of it. That makes it really difficult to go east and west through the country. And so travelers who needed to go east and west are looking for places where the terrain softens a bit, where we don't have this rugged terrain to move through. And in the area of the Benjamin Plateau, we have a place where there's an uplift in the valley floor that allows for that transit east and west without doing all of the climbing. So it was just a natural place to move through the heart of the country going east and west, just north of Jerusalem. It's kind of the same problem that a lot of folks who migrated from the east to the west in the U.S. back in the 1800s, once they faced the Rocky Mountains, they had to find an easier place to get through rather than climb the crazy things. And why is it called the Benjamin Plateau? So the tribal territory of Benjamin, remember that Jacob had 12 sons, and we have tribal allotments Mm -hmm. given to them at the time of uh, Joshua. The tribe of Benjamin inherited a portion of this center part of the country, and the western part of that, uh, which is the higher plateau, is what we call the Benjamin Plateau. So what happens there that's so important for us to think about today? Yeah, Joshua 10. Should we grab a verse that will help us anchor? Joshua 10, verse 8. Elisa, would you be so kind as to read that for us? You bet. Okay, this is in a passage where some kind of very bizarre kind of miracle takes place with a long, long day. Okay, verse 8 of Joshua 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, and he's talking about the armies, okay? I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Yeah, I'm going to land, first of all, in that first direction. Don't be afraid. Joshua had a lot of good reason to be afraid (laughs) at this point in time and at this place. In the book of Joshua, we meet God's people after their time in Egypt, after their time in the wilderness, and now they've crossed the Jordan and they're taking possession of the land that was promised to Abraham and Sarah back in in Genesis 12. We read about some signature victories, Jericho, right? Probably the one Mm, most people know about. But for the first time, we're moving to the interior of the country, and now we're not taking on a single entity, a single city-state like Jericho. We're taking on five city-states mm-hmm. all at the same time. Mm-hmm. First time for Israel to do that. Because it's this crossroads place. Yeah, exactly right. Jerusalem, who's going to be the head of this coalition, realizes if we lose this We've lost the internal crossroads of the country, and the invading army can go anywhere it wants. So it's strategic defensively. It's also strategic offensively. Uh, Israel Mm -hmm. is going to this place for the same reason that Jerusalem and the coalition is trying to defend it. And are these city-states that normally would get along, or are they just coming together because of Joshua and the army, or what's going on there? It's interesting, Daniel. We've got some reporting that comes out of their correspondence with Egypt, and in their correspondence, 
it shows they don't get along very well. And they're always complaining about one another to the Egyptians. So uh, what's the old saying? The, the enemy of my enemy is my the friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And, and yeah. that's what we've got going on here. Hmm. So when the Lord tells him, don't fear... Uh, even though, as you rightly say, he has plenty of reason to be afraid, he says, not one of them shall stand before you. What does he do to back that promise up? Yeah. Well, I'm going to add one more thing to that observation, Bill, and that is Joshua is not only facing a large coalition at a critical juncture in the land and in the strategy of invasion, he's also made an all-night forced march with several thousand feet of elevation gain arriving early in the morning. You can't imagine a situation where you are more disadvantaged than Joshua and the Israelite army were. Hmm. And yet at this moment, the Lord does something. And I don't know what that something is, because at the very moment where we're looking for maybe an explanation of what the Lord does, we're simply told that the Lord sent the enemy fleeing away from them. Now, we've got some inset Hebrew poetry that is involved here. Some would interpret that as the lengthening of the day. I question that a little bit because I'm not sure that what Joshua needed most was more time. Was there some sort of sign in the heavens, the positioning of celestial bodies that suggested to the superstitious Canaanites, it's a bad day to fight and we're going to leave? Actually, the explanation that I find most attractive is cloud cover because Hmm. it would have allowed for Hmm. less dehydration to occur on this day. And the language of the poetry is metaphoric. So we've got two Hebrew words there, dome, which means become inactive. The sun and the moon became inactive. And we have the Hebrew word amud, which means to to stand down, stand by. Uh, And so what exactly happened in the celestial world, I can't tell you for sure. Mm -hmm. What I can tell you for sure is God showed up at the intersection. And that's a promise that I carry with me throughout my life Mm. because I'm at intersections too. That's beautiful, Jack. Yeah, we all are. And I'm struck by being at this intersection, and you really drew our attention to it as we started to chat. In verse 8, God starts out with, don't be afraid. And this isn't the first time God has said that to Joshua. Mm -hmm. I mean, God has said that to Joshua Mm -hmm. repeatedly through all of the different battles and challenges he's faced. From the very moment he took command, God has said, don't be afraid. And here's one more moment, a crossroads. And don't we return to those in our lives? Mm -hmm. Moments when God has met us and spoken to us, revealed something to us from scripture or from life, and he takes us back to that. Again, just like you're describing. Yeah, and I feel like life goes in a roundabout, Mm. (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. So I get past one of those moments, and I'm right on to the next one. Yeah. I think, Jack, when you said that God shows up, I mean, when we see the power of the God of the Bible and the way he's described to us, I think, first of all, absolutely, when I'm at an intersection, that's the God that I want showing up. I also think that because that is the God who's going to show up, even though I understand your answer for what happened that day with the the cloud cover or whatever, for me, it is absolutely possible that God did exactly what this says, and I don't have to explain it except for the fact that God showed up. I think the biblical author had the capacity to tell me exactly what happened. And by deferring to the poetry, it really sort of takes the attention off of the what and puts me on the who, and it's the who that makes the difference. And I think understanding the impact of place related to this story in the book of Joshua helps us to understand it better and helps us be encouraged by the fact that we can trust God, the God who provided in a miraculous way for Joshua. Now, our provision likely won't be in that same dramatic way, but he can and he will provide. Now, this is a difficult part of the Old Testament. We often struggle with this period of the conquest and what it seems to say about God. And uh, so let's listen to a brief follow-up conversation they had addressing the question that Daniel voices. There's one thing we haven't really talked about yet, though, that's bothering me. And that is, this is another one of those stories where Joshua and Israel comes in, and as a result of them being there, a lot of people are killed. The word that I see in my translation here is a great slaughter. And so the thing that I'm struggling with right now is we're talking about God showing up. 
we're talking about this deliverance for Israel. But what that also meant for these other city-states was that a lot of people died. How do we reconcile that with the fact that this is a God that says, don't fear, because for those city-states, they were afraid. Yeah. I wished I could answer that to my satisfaction as well as everyone else's, because it's a point as a reader of the Old Testament that I struggle a bit to. I can tell you where I've landed with it, at least for the moment, and that is the ultimate good that God needs to bring about sometimes is accomplished in ways that I personally wouldn't think of doing it. Uh, I feel like at this point, I simply have to stand back and say, okay, Lord, this is not the way that I would choose to do this, but I trust that you know what you're doing. I think anytime we tackle one of these really thorny events in the Old Testament especially, we just have to be reminded of what Abraham said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Mm -hmm. And at some point, we just have to trust that, yes, he will. It's an issue of faith for us to believe that, yes, God is good. The judge of all the earth will do what's right, and we have to kind of plant our flag there and trust him. Yeah, and I think, too, one of the things that I always am reminded when I read stories like this is the Bible is a story about a God who saves and invites us to follow him, and this particular story plays a part in God's big story, which is leading us forward to Jesus, whose life, death, resurrection, and ascension brings life to the world. And so taking what you said, Bill, that God will do what is right and placing faith in that idea and then reading the Bible as a story that points us to Jesus gives me hope that even if maybe I'm reading this story incorrectly, the ultimate point is not what this story says about what's happening with Israel. The ultimate point is what it says about a God who says, don't fear because I'm making all things right. And one day he does through Jesus. Yeah, as Jack said, we wish we had a more satisfying answer in a lot of ways, but bottom line, it is an issue of trust. Well, you're listening to the Discover the Word podcast with Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and our guest, Bible geography expert, Dr. Jack Beck. And Jack will take us to the familiar story of David and Goliath next. And I think you're going to be surprised at how much location information you missed in that story and how much place impacts our understanding of even this familiar passage. So we'll get to that in 60 seconds after this. Dr. Jack Beck on partnering with Our Daily Bread Ministries to make the geography of the Bible meaningful. Several years ago, I came to ODB with a vision and said, you know, there's something going on here that the church hasn't wrapped its arms around very tightly. I said, I'm going to try to get the church to think more carefully about the geography they have in their Bible. Are you interested in coming alongside and seeing what we could do together to change how the church reads their Bible? I mean, I I don't know that we've created a revolution, but we've created some inroads, (laughs) I think, from what I can tell in people's lives. This place is different than other places, so what makes this story different because it happens here than if it happened somewhere else? That's a fairly easy door to open and a very long hallway to walk down for the rest of your life. You know? yeah, and one of the resources that we work together to develop is a video series called Holy Land. Now, Jack has led all sorts of tours to Israel, and in this series, he's your guide to the land, the culture, and the customs that surround the stories of the Bible. Look for the link to watch the series Holy Land with Dr. Jack Beck on YouTube at discovertheword.org. Well, how about a story that you hear again for the first time? Story of David and Goliath. Do you know that story, Mm. right? (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those iconic stories that has a life even outside of Bible readers, Mm -hmm. but within the Bible reading community, I think it's just one of those stories that we think we really know. So uh, let's see what we don't know. Bill, would you uh, help us set the geographic stage by reading the way this story begins? Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, the first three verses. 
Okay, and as I look at this, I'm seeing some really interesting names that I have the opportunity to mispronounce. So, First uh, <laughs> Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdemim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. You know, all these words just fly past me because I have no idea how to pronounce them or what they mean. I ignore them and I go to what makes sense to me, which is the last verse. The Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites another, and the valley was in between them. I'm selectively reading and I confess it and I wish I wasn't, but I'm kind of stuck. It might have been better just to start with, there were two armies on two different mountains getting Uh ready to fight. And now I'm like, oh, okay, what's going to happen? Yeah. And you know, when I hear this story narrated, it almost always starts with the description of Goliath, right? Which is really (laughs) stunning visual material. But nobody ever reads those first three verses and says, you getting charged up about this? (laughs) But Jack, for the Jewish people back in the ancient times for whom this story was being recorded... All of that data would have had a much bigger place in their hearts than for us. It just feels like, okay, that's just extra information. But for them, that would have been very important to them, right? Yeah, so let's help you join the story in its place. And I think you'll realize that the way this story begins is actually incredibly, incredibly powerful. Think of the story setting as running through three vertical lines. The one farthest to the east is the mountains. That's where the Israelites live. The one farthest to the west or left is where the Philistines live on the coastal plain along the Mediterranean Sea. And between those two places, uh, we've got a set of east-west ridges and valleys called the Shephelah, the humble hills, the foothills, they create the corridor between these two living groups, Israelites up in the mountains, Philistines out on the coastal plain. Now, if you're on good terms with your neighbors on the opposite side of the Shephelah, well, great. But that's not the case here. We have an invasion underway. The Philistines have moved off the coastal plain They're moving through that foothill area of the Shephelah, of which this valley, the Elah, is one, and they're moving up into the mountains. Now, I think it's fair to ask, what are they interested in up in the mountains? Really, there's not a lot going on there. They're probably interested in moving all the way through the mountains and taking over the trade routes to the east of those mountains on the east side of the Jordan River Valley. But from the perspective of my home up in the mountains, I don't like what I'm seeing at all. Because when I position the Philistines in that valley, they are just about ready to cross over into the interior. And once they move up into the mountain interior and make contact with the central ridge road that runs through the interior, they have access to every single city, town, and village uh, that is uh, in the Israelite stronghold. So uh, when you see the picture Painted like you see it painted here, this is a national emergency. And for those readers up in the mountains, they're leaning in and they're going, oh no, what's going to happen next? Okay. We essentially have lost the entire valley except for the very far eastern side. And so we are on the brink of losing it all. Mm -hmm. Everything's on the line. All the chips have been pushed in the middle of the table. Use the metaphor you want. Mm -hmm. We are at the point of, if we don't get this right, we're going to be in big trouble. And having driven through the Ela Valley, um, it is an ideal battlefield. I mean, for that kind of combat that they did in ancient times, it is almost made for that. It's almost made for combat. Yeah, it is one of those places where you are going to be most effective if you're using chariots in particular. So, Jack, we've seen in the few chapters leading up to this, Saul's leadership is slipping, and as a result of his slipping leadership, Israel has become increasingly more vulnerable. As a result, David's now been anointed king, 
And so not only is this like a statement about the crisis of Israel, but it's also a crisis of Saul has let it come to this point. Crisis of leadership, yeah. Yeah. I think Saul would have loved to hire you as his PR man, Daniel, because you really <laughs> softened that criticism in a way that yeah. exceeds what the biblical authors do. They are sharply critical of this guy who has been slipping spiritually and uh, politically and as the leader of Israelite army. Remember, he came to power under the direction, we need someone to go ahead of us and fight our battles for us. Spotlight's on you. And what we read in 1 Samuel 17 is that again and again, as Goliath came out to make the challenge, we have fearful Israelites. Saul's giving no inspiration. He's giving no direction. And we've stalemated this situation. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, we're told about Saul that he was head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the nation of Israel. And so since you have this kind of giant guy, Goliath, coming down, the most logical guy to go fight him is not only the king who's supposed to lead them, but also the biggest dude they've got. Yeah, yeah that's right. And while David is, you know, charismatic and ruddy and handsome and etc., he's young, very young, and would be seemingly not a good candidate to fight. Yeah, inexperienced, I think, mm-hmm. is for sure the story there. He's actually been involved in the military. His age is probably a bit older than he's often pictured. In Hebrew, he's called a na'ar, which means he isn't married. And we know that he's already been involved in the court of Saul, that he's got some military experience. My trajectory would go not so much to youth as just, you haven't done this much. And uh, in terms of the dynamic of the family, the older brothers are the ones who are on the battle. He's back home taking care of the livestock because he's the youngest. <laughs> and what's so striking about it, he doesn't show up to fight. I mean, he was sent with the groceries, right? Yeah. Here's some cheeses. Here's some things. Take these down to your brother. Get back as quick as you can and get back to taking care of the livestock. And yet, here's the guy that the Lord says, I'm going to show you the importance of my pick as the next leader of Israel. And so mm-hmm. we, we actually have a, an arena in this national emergency to compare how does Saul do with this and how does David do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. And it's almost everything that then is told in the story. You know, Bible stories are told with so much economy that everything is important. Everything we observe David doing and saying says something about his leadership skills. Among other things, he refuses to use Saul's armor because he's not had the chance to test it yet. There's some, even for a younger person, I mean, there's great wisdom in that. Uh, I think also the very fact that he understands what he's good at Mm -hmm. and what he's not good at, and he's willing to go with his strengths, even though they don't look very strong. Those would show some ideas that would tend towards somebody who had potential for leadership. And you're meaning like he picks up a slingshot instead of a sword which is what he's good at. He's used to doing that as a shepherd. Uh Sure. And he also has that young passion that we see, especially in people when they often first come to know the Lord, where they're just like, God can do anything. And he's defending the name of the Lord in his language to Goliath. And there's just this passion that's exuding from him to defend not just Israel, but to defend the God of Israel that it leads him to run into battle. Yeah. I love the choice of weapons. You know, if there's anything that gets emphasized in this story, other than geography, read it again and just notice every time the author mentions some sort of military technology, we get this incredibly detailed description. So we know exactly what Goliath has. And we know the killing range, proximate killing range of the spear, which is his long range weapon. David grabs a sling which will allow him to engage and dispatch Goliath hundreds of feet before he's within range of any of Saul's weapons. I mean, that's just a brilliant, brilliant strategy. Mm-hmm. This guy has faith. I don't want to come to that in a moment, but he's, he's smart. He knows mm-hmm. that he's not going to put himself within range of that spear before he has a chance to make contact with his sling. Yeah. But I think the biggest thing, right, is his faith. And what's so striking to me is when he comes to these verses, I think it's verses uh, 45 through 47. You know, the author, the narrator, has told us again and again about the weapons. And when David has the opportunity to say, look at the weapon I chose, even though I go, that's a smart weapon, (laughs) he goes, but that's not what I'm counting on. (sighs) And I love the language, yeah? You come at me with sword and spear and javelin. Notice the language. When David talks about the weapons... 
He talks about what Goliath has, not about what he has. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty, the, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it is not, look at that, it's not by sword and spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will deliver uh, you into our hands. There, Daniel, your words of that courage, that youthful Mm -hmm. energy and courage that just breathes through that, as well as his faith. I mean, who watching David trundle down the Judean mountain ridge towards the Ela Valley in the camp was thinking, oh, there's our solution, right? But the Lord has wonderfully tucked a set of skills and passions into this person who is going to really show us what the Lord can do when uh, one of his own is in the lead. Some stories in the Bible are just so well known, and some stories aren't. And this is one of those stories that just isn't known very well, but it talks about a really important topic, and that is how we go about making important decisions. Hmm. Thank you for setting it up that way, because now when we admit that we don't know the story, it does make us look bad. <laughs> Apology accepted. Apology accepted, Daniel. It's so short, we can probably enjoy reading it together. Daniel, would you be so kind okay. as to read Second Chronicles 35, verses 20 through 24? I'll be interested in your reaction to it, by the way. So this is Second Chronicles 35, verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order... King Necho of Egypt went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. But Necho sent envoys to him, saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I am not coming against you today, but against this house with which I am at war, and God has commanded me to hurry. See, supposing God who is with me, so that he will not destroy you. But Josiah would not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but joined battle in the plain of Megiddo. The archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. There he died and was buried in the tombs of his ancestors. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. You know, so what do you know about King Josiah? We're meeting him on the last day of his life in this particular story. But what do you know about him? Well, he was considered one of the good kings. And uh, when Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, there were no good kings in the north, and there were only a smattering of good kings in the south, but Josiah was one of them. Yeah, a good egg among many, 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 many rotten eggs, and he stood out for that, and I think we remember him for his obedience and his holiness even for a long time. Yeah, and when we say good kings versus bad kings, what we mean, right, are the good kings are those who sought God, the God of Israel. Yeah. And the bad kings were often kings that pursued false gods and Mm -hmm. worshipped idols and often even sacrificed children in worship to those idols. And Daniel, you've talked a lot about um, the wisdom of choosing God's way versus my way, that that's really a definition of wisdom. And, And so Josiah was generally taken as a person of wisdom who would seek God's way rather than my way. And it wasn't just on a personal level either. I think it's important to keep in mind that what made him a good king was not only that he personally sought the Lord, but that he also sought to turn the nation back Mm -hmm. to the Lord. Because as you rightly said, there were other kings who had moved them in the direction of other gods. And when a good king came along, not only was their heart bent toward God, but they tried to move the nation back in that direction as well. So how are we doing so far, Jack? Is that some stuff that helps? (laughs) Absolutely. And imagine if you were writing the headline for this particular story in Josiah's time. I mean, this is shocking. Age 39, years of additional leadership to come, he's dead. Mm Mm-hmm. It shocks us 
that his life shudders to a close like this. And it makes me go back and say, well, what am I missing? What happened mm. to bring about this dramatic end to his life? And of course, the answer is geographical. Hmm. <laughs> of course. Of course. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> that was my first thought as well, Jack. <laughs> I see that he's disobedient. How do you get that that's geographical? Yeah, well, we've got a couple of things going on here. I mean, the, the geography in the story tells us the bigger backstory, right? We've got Egyptians who live south and west of the promised land who are on the move. The army is on the move. They are not coming to attack God's people of the past, Israel. King Josiah. They're on their way through. They're simply using this as a transportation corridor. They're on their way to another battle in the larger story of the ancient Near Eastern this time. You've got two empires that are vying for power against one another, northeast of Israel, the Babylonians and the Assyrians. If you read the Old Testament, those names are going to show up. Two important empires of the past. Uh, The Assyrians are in decline. The Babylonians are on the rise. That's the backstory. Now, the Egyptians are looking at this picture and they go, well, we kind of like the fact that the Assyrians are getting weaker. Babylonians are farther away. That advantages us. So what we're going to do is go up there to a place called Carchemish, and we're going to come alongside the Assyrians and make sure that the Babylonians don't wipe them out. King Josiah looks at that and goes, man, these Assyrians have caused us a whole lot of grief over the last uh, decades. We're really going to be happy to see them gone. And so he says, I would rather not have the Egyptian army come and help the Assyrians. And that's a lot of backstory, right? Yeah, but it's almost an example of the be careful what you ask for, you might get it. Because if Josiah was thinking we'd rather have the Babylonians, they find out some years later that that wasn't such a good choice. Yeah, absolutely. And now the geography comes in to help explain Josiah's thinking. He is, by all accounts, a less well-equipped, less well-trained, less numerous army than the Egyptians. Where in the world do you try to stop that sort of juggernaut who's moving through your country? And he chooses a mountain pass just to the west of Megiddo. That's a name you likely have heard Mm -hmm. before, right? Mm -hmm. Megiddo here is helping us position this at a place that really was the only place along the line of march of the Egyptians where a smaller army had a chance against this large Egyptian army. So tactically, this makes perfect sense. Theologically, this makes perfect sense because the area that we're in, Megiddo, the Jezreel Valley, is a place that tends to have lots of stories that show God acting on behalf of his people in disadvantaged situations, whether we're talking about Elijah against the 450 prophets of Baal, or we're talking about uh, Deborah and Barak fighting the Canaanites of Hazor, or we're talking about Gideon talking about the Midianite invasion. These are all instances in which a larger force is threatening to take over, and the Lord comes to the aid of Israel and gives them incredible victories. I think Josiah figured he was the next one in that list. Hmm. I don't want to pull us off, but I'm just stuck into verses like 21 and then down into 22. I mean, we don't typically think of Egyptians as being God-fearing, Yahweh-fearing, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the Neko says, God has told me to hurry, so stop mm-hmm. opposing God who's with me or he'll destroy you. And then Josiah would not turn away from him, but disguised himself, and he would not listen to what Neko said at God's command. So as you're using these other battle illustrations of Deborah and Barak against, you know, Hazor and Gideon against the Midianites and, and Elijah against the false prophets, those are clearly God against not God. But here's God against God, and, and Josiah missed that? Yeah. Is it, that what you're saying? I think what's so interesting about those verses, Elisa, that you've pointed us to, is that my translation capitalizes them. Huh. And I'm wondering if the Egyptian pharaoh Necho was actually a god-fearer, or if he is referring to his set of deities, right? In the ancient mm-hmm. Near Eastern uh-huh. world, politics, okay. war, and religion were all commingled in one. 
everything was imbued with theological significance. And you would consult the gods to do things. He certainly did that before going to war. And yet my translation capitalizes it as well. And I'm not sure that that's wrong because the reason for the quote, I think, is to get Josiah to stop and think, hey, if an Egyptian pharaoh is smart enough to consult his gods before he goes Mm -hmm. to war, Maybe I should also consult the Lord before I go to war. And that's what's missing in the story, is this incredibly important decision that he makes. He considers the tactical advantage. He looks at the theological landscape and says, yeah, it seems like exactly the right place. But he doesn't give it that half beat of pause and say, maybe I should go to the Lord on this and make sure that I've got this one right. Which is exactly what he had done in the chapters before this, right? Like he was the one that when the law was discovered, this law that God had given Israel that they had forgotten about, he was the first one to like, let's listen to what God has to say and how we should act. And so it's striking that at some point he's starting to lose his way and he forgets to consult the very one who has helped shape everything that he's done up Mm. to this point. And I think that's an easy trap to fall into because we can kind of get into the rhythm of life in such a way that we're just doing life and we're in the routine and it's this and then it's this and then it's this. And we forget that God is part of our life in every one of those moments, not just the super big things, but in the everyday 99 cent things too. I mean, God's Mm -hmm. a part of all of that. And we live in his presence, not just living out life with whatever's happening next. That's so good, Bill. And it it can be a very small moment when we overlook, when we take for granted, when we figure we understand and we may miss it altogether. I can think of family conversations where I don't Mm. stop and pray. I've always done it this way. This is how we've always led. And so I'm going to continue down that path. And I needed to stop. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. It's such a powerful cautionary tale isn't it? I mean, it's a tragic story. It's an awful story. But it's this cautionary tale that says, have you thought about that one, one more step? Uh, And I'm so struck by the fact that if an Egyptian pharaoh knows enough to consult the gods before going into war, as misguided as that theological framing is, am I making the same mistake Josiah does? That's the risk. A sobering end to one of Judah's few good kings. But a powerful reminder for us today. This is a cautionary tale indeed, isn't it? Well, the group will wrap up the first half of our conversations with Jack Beck about the impact of place. In just a moment, he'll take us to the most mentioned place in the Bible. And he guesses as to what that location might be. We'll find out after this word about our next Discover the Word podcast. Next time on Discover the Word, Dr. Jack Beck is back for more conversations about the impact of place. Trying to be intentional about how stories really do have homes in these places. You can't take one of these stories and shift its location and end up with the same outcome. And so Jack takes us to Bethlehem and to the wilderness, to the place where Jesus brought his good friend back to life. Back to the Shephelah, where earlier we discovered that a meeting went poorly, but this time it'll go great. And to a place where how church was done changed forever. More fascinating observations about the impact of place with Dr. Jack Beck on the next Discover the Word podcast. Now, let's wrap up the first half of our conversations with Dr. Jack Beck about the impact of place. When I have the uh, opportunity to speak to a group about Bible geography for the first time, one of the things that I really enjoy doing is asking them to take a moment and write down five Bible places that they're aware of. Hmm. Now, when I do that, Can you imagine what would be on those lists? Oh, I think about the Garden of Eden or Golgotha or Bethlehem. Sea of Galilee. The number one place, Jerusalem. Ah, I'm sure that makes sense. It doesn't surprise me because Jerusalem 
is the most frequently referenced place in the Bible throughout. I mean, Genesis through Revelation, if you look at its names, Jerusalem, Zion, City of David, there are a number of different names. It is mentioned more frequently than any place else. It becomes the capital of Israel and the focal point of its theological message. So it's just not surprising to me that we meet it so often in the Bible and that people are familiar with it. I think what's striking is how much it surprises a Bible geographer that Jerusalem would rise to this elevation, right? Huh. Now, was that a pun? Uh, <laughs> elevation. On a yeah. high elevation? Mm-hmm. I can't help but think in geographic terms, Bill. That's just, you know, who I am. It's baked into the cake. Yeah. You talk to other Bible geographers about this and, you know, folks who aren't in the Christian community or Bible reading community, and they're just shocked at why Jerusalem would have risen to this elevation. I mean, if you look at other capital cities, uh, they tend to share a number of things in common. They have really good access to transportation corridors that feed their economy. They have the capacity to grow enough food for a large city, and they have good water sources. I mean, at base, Mm. you can't have a big city without those three. And yet at every one of those markers, Jerusalem fails. Hmm. Wasn't it also true that they tried to locate in places that could be defended against attacking armies and things like that? Yeah, and Bill, Mm -hmm. you've got the one thing that Jerusalem has. It has natural strategic defensibility. But that's a tough sell for a city site when you don't have enough food and water, (laughs) right? (laughs) There are other places that are as easily defended that have better food and, and water. So the question is, why in the world would Jerusalem grow to such significance and importance? And I think the answer comes in the portion of Scripture I'd love to look at with you. It's Psalm 132, particularly verses 13 and 14. This is such beautiful poetry. Elisa, could I ask you to read those verses for us? Absolutely. Okay, verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. The very place that I might, as a Bible geographer, defer on, the Lord says, I choose that. It feels emotional to me Hmm. rather than strategic. Hmm. And if I can, I'll go on. I will read verse 15 and 16, which follow. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor, I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. It's almost like, um, I mean, you're saying all the things that Jerusalem didn't have food and, you know, the ability to provide the economy, et cetera. But God says, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to take care of that because I'm going to live there. Yeah, it's almost like he puts them in the the least meaningful place for a capital just so that they don't depend on all the natural resources and they have to depend on him. I love that. I'm struck at how, like, counterintuitive that this is, right? Because, like, what do they teach in real estate? right? The three L's, location, location, location. And oftentimes they tell you when you're making a decision, you shouldn't make decisions based on emotion, but on the facts, right? It's like a combination of both those things. But then again, like, isn't that how God often works in these counterintuitive ways where he takes the least of something and makes Mm -hmm. it great? I think it's interesting that we started off with Abraham securing the first piece of land in the Bible lands, and now we end this week with the piece of land that God secured for his own dwelling place by his description. What I'm wondering, Jack, is since the Bible teaches us about a God who is everywhere present at the same time, Mm -hmm. why does he need a dwelling place? Yeah, Yeah, it's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? And the first thing I would encourage you to do is, is to just go back into these words and look at how localized God makes himself in this language. Verses 7 and 13, he speaks of his dwelling place. Verse 7, his footstool. Uh, He talks about verse 8 and 14, his resting place. Verse 14, I'll sit enthroned. There's a lot of language that localizes God to Jerusalem in some unique fashion. Now, 
The first thing I'd say, Bill, is it doesn't countermand the everywhere, all the time presence of God. Hmm. But there is something different about Jerusalem because he doesn't speak of himself as being localized in any other location the way he does when he speaks about his being localized in Jerusalem. So I I own it. There's something special. Mm -hmm. Now imagine, if you will, what it meant to go to Jerusalem as someone who was living in Bible times. You are not just going to the capital city, you are going to be in the presence Mm -hmm. of the Lord that you worship. It's not just in Bible times, Jack. Um, I remember leading groups in Israel, and I remember the first time our bus kind of crested over the Mount of Olives, which is to the east of the old city. And there were people on our bus that literally burst out in tears seeing the city of Jerusalem. There was just this emotional weight. And there was a dynamic in that place that you just can't really describe, but it seems very, very real. And it's amazing to me that this God who exists everywhere all the time, who is eternal, says, I'm going to come and settle in next to you. (laughs) And when someone does that, when someone sits down close next to me, I think, you got something to say. And God has something to say in Jerusalem that I think is so powerful. And I just wouldn't want us to miss. We need to go outside this psalm a little bit to get it, but it will forever change the way you think about Jerusalem as a Bible reader. How many temples were there in Jerusalem? Oh, one to God. (laughs) Yeah, just one. And that makes it different than other capital cities in the ancient Near Eastern world, which were peppered Mm -hmm. with deities. It is the place where God says, I want to show you how unique I am in this pan-theological world of the ancient Near East. I am one. Israel was the only one saying that. It's what God had revealed to them, and it's what God chose to say when he sat next to folks in Jerusalem. And it's not the first time that God has done this with Israel because in the wilderness, they build the tabernacle and God, while they're in tents, God is in a tent. Yes. And so he's been this God of presence throughout their story, this God who is with them. And so it makes sense that once they get to Jerusalem and have more of an established presence in one region, that God too establishes his presence in a very physical, tangible way as much as the universal sense of he's with all of us. Yeah. Yeah, and isn't that true that that one temple in that city that pictured God's presence in a building, just like the people now were in houses, like you're saying, Daniel, that temple pointed forward to when Emmanuel, God with us, would come, and one day the temple would be destroyed, but now worship is centered in the person of Jesus because he became the replacement temple for the one that would go away. Yeah. And in connection with Jesus, and really in connection with the temple and Jerusalem, the third message, other than I am one, and I'm with you, is I forgive you. Mm -hmm. And there's no place on earth where that message goes to ground in a more powerful way than in Jerusalem. And so these, these vital things that I need to know that make God unique and personal to me and eternally beneficial to me are all said in Jerusalem. I am one, I am with you, and I forgive you. If you know that about Jerusalem, you'll understand why the biblical authors choose to mention it so often in their stories. Is it fair to say, Jack, that um, Jerusalem, in a way, captures the entire message of the gospel? of our great need, not having the supplies we need, being dependent as we are, Mm. of God's one presence with us and offering of forgiveness through the cross of Jesus. And so just even saying the word Jerusalem, which would have meant one thing for an Old Testament Jew and another thing for a 21st century follower of Jesus, but saying that word gives us the true encapsulization of what the gospel means. Yeah. I'm trying to think of one word other than the word gospel. Yeah. 
that may say as much as the word Jerusalem says. And, and here's what I love about what we have just done together. We've shown that Bible geography not only informs our reading of Bible stories, but it informs our reading of all different types of literature in the Bible, including the poetry, including the Psalms, because part of the way God has chosen to communicate with us using geography is tucked neatly into this poetry as well, creating these lovely word pictures that are place pictures as well. As Jack said, in his mind, no other place says as much about the gospel, about the big story the Bible is telling, as Jerusalem. The impact of that place is hard to overestimate. Well, this is the Discover the Word podcast with Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day, and our special guest for this series, Dr. Jack Beck. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. We encourage you to explore other studies with the group on our discovertheword.org website. Well, I'm Brian Hedding. Thanks for studying with us. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.